Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. We have revived an episode of Dr. Vera Tarman, Tony Vassello, and guests interviewing Dr. Michael Gorin and Dr. Nicole Avina last fall when they discussed children, sweets, holidays, and more. Dr. Michael Gorin is a childhood nutritional expert. He works as a professor of pediatrics in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. He is the program chair for diabetes and obesity at the Saban Research Institute, and he holds the Atkins Endowed Chair in Childhood Obesity and Diabetes. He has worked for more than 30 years covering research areas such as maternal infant nutrition, how the developmental programming of obesity occurs, and the ethnic disparities in obesity and obesity-related diseases. He is the co-author, along with Emily Ventura, of Sugar Proof, How Sugar Puts Your Kids at Risk of Hyperactivity, Tantrums, Digestive Troubles, and Learning Problems, and More, and What You Can Do About It. Dr. Nicole Avina is a research neuroscientist, author, and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. She received a PhD in neuroscience and psychology from Princeton University, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology at the Rockefeller University in New York City. She regularly appears on TV and radio and this podcast and speaks at universities, government agencies, schools about her research on food, addiction, and nutrition through the lifespan. As a mother of two children, she has a keen interest in the nutritional needs of infants and toddlers. In today's episode, our friends discuss what happens in pregnancy when sugar is being consumed, the role our brains play in the preference for sweetness and genetic changes in the reward system in babies who were exposed to a sugar-filled environment, developing children are more susceptible to dangers of sugar and what we can do about it, the importance of early life nutrition, why breakfast is a big deal, examples of healthy swaps that we can make for our children, why we may want to consider starting a switch switch tradition, what limits we should have for added sugars for our children, how to have conversations with our children about reasonable amounts of sweets to be eating in a day, the budding sugar addict and what to do, sugar substitutes or low-calorie sweeteners are discussed, Dr. Gorin and Dr. Avina give their thoughts on simple and complex carbs in our children, how grandparents can help their children and grandchildren to reduce added sugar in their lives. They discuss why we need more research about food addiction in younger populations and the importance of treating the symptoms of food addiction, whether it is or not. So sit back and enjoy today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Welcome, Nicole and Michael. Hello there. You're finally getting it. I'm going to get a chance to say something. <laughs> In the face of Halloween and American Thanksgiving and the seasonal holidays coming up, we can expect uh, lots of potential minefields for parents who want to make good decisions around their children's food. And both of you are researchers in the field of child nutrition and food addiction. And as Tony has said, has written several books 
targeted two families with children. So, I, Nicole, if you'd like to start, since you're the closest on the uh, the thing there, just the, if there's anything else you want to introduce about yourself, and then it'll move it on to Michael after that. Uh, no, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm really happy to be able to have a discussion about some of the challenges that people face, not only as parents, but just also in general around this time of year when it comes to trying to eat healthy and what are some of the ways in which we can maybe make some simple changes that will make it easier for everyone. So I'm really excited to be here and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Michael, floor is yours. Yes. yes. Hi. Hello. Thank you, Vera. Thank you, Tony. And Thank you for everybody else who's tuned in today. Um, lovely to be here and happy to answer questions and get into a good discussion of how we can enjoy the seasonal holidays coming up and stay healthy and enjoy and try to limit sugar a little bit. And we'll talk a little bit about suggested ways to doing that. So look forward to your questions. Okay. I wanted to start with you, Dr. Grant. You have your book, Sugar Proof, where you actually talk about, I mean, let's start with what happens with sugar in terms of toxicity and development in womb, in vitro? In vivo. Yeah, let's start yeah. there. Yeah, so this to me was through our research and other people's research, one of several aha moments that led us to write the book. And studies show, and these are very difficult studies, and some of them are in animal models and some of them are in human studies where they look at cohorts over time. And several large human cohort studies have shown that higher levels of consumption of sugar during pregnancy are associated with increased obesity in the offspring, and not just obesity, increased metabolic disease risk, decreased learning as well. And also studies also showing not just real sugar, but the same effect probably for different reasons due to alternative sweeteners during pregnancy and in early life. And we can get into talking a little bit about the mechanism, but certainly there is evidence beginning to mount up showing the developmental origins of chronic diseases that start in the womb and then continue through life. And that would mean also an actual taste for sugar for a choice. Once the baby's born, an actual predisposition towards wanting more sugary foods. Is that not right? That's correct. So babies are actually born with a built-in preference for sweetness. And this was supposed to be an evolutionary advantage to favor breast milk, which is sweet, and to avoid toxic food from the forest floor. But of course, now we have babies who are expected to thrive in a food environment where 70% of foods at the grocery store, over 80% of infant foods and kids' snacks have added sugar. And studies show that even early introduction to sugar, including in the womb, in infancy and childhood, can amp up that preference for sweetness. Yeah. So food companies know about this, and that's why they design foods with high sugar and target kids because they know they're going to like them and get hooked on them. And, and basically that what happens is this innate preference for sweetness gets amped up, beginning in utero and then in early life. So then kids just crave more sugar and more sweetness. Do you have, is it possible to explain in a simple way what the mechanism is? You said that you could talk about that, but I don't want to get into a big scientific lecture about it, but is there some simple gem that you can give to explain why that happens? Well, in, in terms of the sweet flavor preference and the pleasure reward, I might turn that question over to Nicole, but in terms of adiposity, for example, yeah, we know that even low levels of fructose in particular can basically alter the fate 
of developing cells. So again, hard to do this in actual humans, but studies and test tubes show that if you put a stem cell, an undifferentiated cell, and you grow it up with sugar and even low levels of fructose, you can alter the fate of that cell to become more like a fat cell. Right. So we're talking cellular, not even yet fetus, not even yet uh, human. It's like cellular. We can already make that change. Well, yeah, because in a fetus or in an infant, cells are rapidly developing and rapidly evolving. So all of our fat cells aren't developed, all of our brain cells aren't developed. But studies show you can alter the development of those cells. And in the brain, it can become a lasting effect because... You lay down neurons and lay down neuronal pathways that then become irreversible. Okay, great. Nicole, do you want to take it from there? Because that sounds like your area. Yeah, I know. What Michael said was also true. And just to add to that, I think speaking from the reward standpoint in terms of you know how the brain plays a role in our desire to eat these sugar-rich foods, when we have children that are essentially reared in a prenatal environment that is loaded with added sugar in many cases because women are maybe perhaps just unaware of the dangers of overconsuming sugar during pregnancy. And also simply, I think, because so much of our food supply has added sugar in it. Even when people try to restrict, it's very, very difficult. And during pregnancy, that's certainly not the time we want to be advising people to be dieting or really be monitoring their food in some way. So what ends up happening is when these babies are born, we've seen from animal model studies that their brains are different in terms of how they process reward. And so there's changes in the gene expression for dopamine neurons. And dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that's involved in reward and reinforcement. And so we'll see these genetic changes that are happening in terms of the DNA methylation for the dopamine neuron receptors. And that is believed to play a role in this sort of long-term process that then ensues where we have this prenatal environment that led to these gene changes in the reward system that leads to this vicious circle of now overeating desire for sugar, and it just really perpetuates itself. And your book, uh, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, presumably addresses how mom can avoid some of this from happening. Yeah. So I was really interested in writing a book about this whole topic. And I I got interested actually when I got pregnant with my first daughter and she's 12 now. And I thought when I got pregnant, oh, this will be easy. I know what I'm doing. And I really found that there wasn't a lot of nutrition information out there for pregnant women. There was a lot of advice about what not to eat, telling people, you know, to stay away from toxic food, don't drink alcohol, don't drink caffeine. But there wasn't anything really kind of walking women through, well, what should you eat and why? What are some of the benefits of the different types of fruits and vegetables and proteins? And you know, why is this important for the development of not only the baby, but just so you can have a healthy pregnancy? So I wrote the book really what I found to be out of necessity for my friends who all were getting pregnant and having babies and just, it's a scary time. And there's really no prenatal nutrition education out there. When women go to the OBGYN for their visits, it's just about how much did you gain in terms of weight? And that's it. Nobody ever says, oh, you should try this recipe because it's loaded with these foods that have antioxidants that'll be helpful for the baby's brain development. So I wanted to just put a positive spin on it and help people to learn how they can use food to empower themselves and to be healthy, not to have to really just avoid it. Yeah. And the thing about your book is it's a week by week, like do this at this time and then you can wait or in a couple of weeks, make sure you introduce this. So it's very clear. 
Thank you. Yeah. I thought it was good because pregnancies are different depending on the person, but the nutritional needs during your first trimester of a pregnancy are very different than the nutritional needs at the end of a pregnancy. And so we decided to do a week by week breakdown so that people could really just understand where they were in that moment of their pregnancy, what was developing in terms of the baby, and then also understand what nutritional components would be important to focus on in a given week. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, uh, Dr. Michael, you go on and talk about uh, childhood and even adolescence and how sugar can impact on, at various different developmental stages once you know child is born and is going on through. And I'm sure we could spend a whole hour just talking about all the different things that can happen. But I was wondering, do you, could you give an, a couple of examples, maybe one in childhood, one in adolescence, about how sugar can make a difference in terms of the development? Yeah, I mean, what we've discovered in our research and other research, again, that kind of inspired me to write the book was the realization that the developing child is more susceptible, more vulnerable to some of the damaging effects of sugar, which becomes problematic since they're craving it more. And I mean, a very obvious tangible example is dental caries, which is one of the main issues connected with sugar. So why does sugar cause dental caries? Because sugar in the mouth grows bacteria, those bacteria produce acid, the acid damages teeth. Why does that affect kids more? It's to do with the fact that kids eat more frequently during the day. That's just a natural part of thriving. You're eating more frequently. Plus, when babies' teeth come in, they're not fully developed enough with all of the correct architecture and enamel to protect from that acid. So that's the developmental, very tangible example. Another one is fructose, which I'm sure we'll talk about as a particular sugar. Babies aren't even born with the machinery to digest fructose because it's not a natural part of breast milk. So if babies are given fructose too early, it can cause digestive issues because they don't have the metabolic machinery to digest it. And then during adolescence, which you asked about, a good example there is a natural part for puberty is insulin resistance. And we showed this in our research many years ago that all kids, regardless of whether you're lean, overweight, active or inactive, become insulin resistant. And when you become insulin resistant, your beta cells have to work harder. And so every time you consume sugar or simple carbohydrates, your beta cells are taxed even more. So consumption of a lot of sugar during this period when your beta cells are already taxed, just dealing with puberty and growth it becomes problematic because it can push them over the edge towards failing and then causing type 2 diabetes. So those are just a couple of examples. I'll stop there because I know you don't want me to talk all day, but I could. Yeah, well, actually, could you say something about memory and intelligence? Because I was really struck by your example about the maths, the students studying math, and how they just don't have the capacity to remember if they're eating a lot of sugar versus somebody who's not. So something about that would be interesting. Yeah, so studies in humans either both based on too much excess sugar consumption in utero or in early life, both point to the same thing, which is a reduction of compromised academic performance, reduction in performance on standardized test scores have all been associated with increased sugar consumption. In animal models, which where you can get a bit more of the mechanism, the same studies show that sugar, again, particularly during the adolescent period, the same may be true during infancy. The studies just haven't been done yet. But sugar exposure during the adolescent period, again, when the brain is developing, can lead to disruptions in memory. And some of that is 
caused by specific inflammation, specific areas of inflammation in the brain by excess sugar consumption. So what to feed your baby and toddler sort of reason for writing that book was really kind of to follow up where I left off with the previous book. I think, you know, again, there's a lot of questions around what to feed your baby and toddler. And we know that there's so much research now that suggests the first thousand days of life, that period from conception through age two is a critical window for development. And so we know that important this information, it's so important. It is. And it's funny because we hear about it now. And I'm glad Michael's book is, I think, bringing some more attention to the importance of early life nutrition and other researchers out there that are keen on this topic. But it's so important. And it's we could prevent so much chronic health, chronic medical conditions just by simply having better education in place about the importance of good nutrition early in life. It's important for not only cognitive development, it's important for physical development, obviously, but the health consequences that can ensue are lifelong. And so I think it's really important that we help parents out there to really understand not only the dangers of overeating sugar at an early point, but also from a psychological standpoint, if children are exposed to a lot of sugar and are eating lots of sweets and things like that, and they grow up in a home that I guess doesn't really provide a good educational opportunity to learn about the health benefits of reducing sugar, setting your kids up essentially for a lifetime of struggle because they're going to become preschoolers and then elementary school kids, middle school, high school, adults eventually that are still going to have these habits that were entrained very early in life. And those can be extremely difficult to break. I mean, when you talk to people who quit smoking or quit drinking alcohol, those are habits you typically don't pick up until you're a late teen, usually later in life. But we're talking about habits that people are now going to have to try to break when they've been in place since day one of life. So that's something that I think was really important when we try to talk to parents about why they need to pay attention and and take it seriously. Thank you. So Nicole, your book is great for the parent who wants to know what to eat, particularly because I think it addresses the hidden sugars and the Mm -hmm. ways because kids are going to want to have that sugar, but everybody else is. Did you want to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think in the book, I talk a lot from my personal experience too, because I have two daughters and the older one is 12. The younger one just started kindergarten. And so I know from personal experience, and I know Michael does as well, he has this personal experience too with his girls about the struggles as a parent when you're trying to basically train your children to be able to police themselves and you want them to be able to enjoy food and go to birthday parties and have a great time. But also we need to be able to try to teach them the skills on how to limit it and how to know when enough is enough. And I think that that's something that's not an easy thing to teach. And it's difficult when you have all these temptations and it's not easy for the kids. So I talk in the book about different tactics and ways and psychological approaches that can be used to try to help talk to your children about food when they get to the appropriate age so that they can make better health choices. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to ask you to give an example of that, but Michael, I want to go to you first because to my reading of your book, that was the essence of what was unique about your book was here it is. There's different ways that family can handle this. How do we navigate this sugar-laden world, holiday time, and just in normal life? So why don't you start with some, like in a way we can start talking about the tips and techniques now that we know that it's not a good idea. Yeah. As Nicole mentioned, I think ultimately the goal is to have kids self-regulate and not to just show up on Sunday afternoon after listening into this and say, okay, kids, that's it. No more sugar. We're done. 
we don't want that. That's going to backfire pretty quickly. So a lot of it is to starts with talking to your kids. And of course, this will depend on how old your kids are, whether they're toddlers or teenagers. And sounds like Nicole has both right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about finding what their internal motivation is. So and that could be very different. And it could be something that you weren't expecting. So you got to talk to your kids one-on-one at their level and try and figure out what it is from their perspective. Maybe they want to do better in school. They want to swim faster in the pool or run faster, or they have poor skin, or could be any number of different issues. But try to talk to them at their level to find out what drives them internally. We don't want to use external motivation because you don't want to be stuck paying your kids not to eat sugar for the next 20 years because that's that's not going to be sustainable. So then from there, there's all kinds of tips in the book that I could talk about. Yeah, um, give us a few. Food rules work. Food rules can work if they're implemented right and agreed upon and not just, again, showing up with a new set of rules. But it could be as simple as, okay, if you want to have candy, that's okay, just only at the weekends. Or soda, no, we're not going to have soda in the house. You have enough soda when you go out with your friends or go to birthday parties or whatever. Parents are shopping, so parents are in control of what comes into the house. I think what comes into the house is very important, especially right now, because most of us are at home and kids are too. Breakfast is a big deal. We talk a lot about breakfast because starting the day off for kids in general, you want to not send them on what we call the sugar roller coaster. So breakfast tends to be a high sugar affair, unfortunately. I think we need to try to fix that. And there's lots of simple ways to fix that. Because you don't have to put jam on your toast. You don't have to put syrup on your pancakes. There's lots of ways to still enjoy those kid treats, but not have them overwhelmed with sugar. Liquid sugar is a big deal. Kids are drinking way too much juice. We don't, juice doesn't really provide the nutritional value that it sounds like it's supposed to. It's mainly just a lot of concentrated sugar and typically the bad kind of sugar which is fructose. So there's really, we don't have to be drinking and we shouldn't be drinking juice. And that sounds easy, but how do you implement that? And there's different ways to do that that we talk about in the book. There's the seven-day challenge, which is, okay, we're just not going to have added sugar for the next seven days. We're going to talk about it and come up with a plan. And yes, the first few days might be tough, but we'll learn to see what, you might discover a new set of kids who are off of sugar and they might be more have stable energy, more stable energy, more focused. Studies show that even seven days of no sugar can improve metabolic profile as well. And then there's the more gradual, because you might think, well, okay, my kids are just not going to go for that. And the more gradual approach can also be done under the radar. If you're a mom or a dad who's procuring all the groceries, then you can decide not to buy juice or not to buy soda, or you can gradually dilute it. Apple juice, for example, is so sweet that you can just start with a small dilution on week one, gradually dilute it even more on week two, and then by the third week, people won't even notice and they'll be fine without the juice. So there's all kinds of tips like that that begin with getting your kids motivated and on board with the idea and either doing a sudden, okay, we're going to go through the house and find all the added sugars and either throw them away or put them in the basement and see what it's like in that will be important because you'll get to discover all these sources of hidden sugar. Yeah. And kids can be involved with that too. You know, take them on a tour of your pantry or see if you can find all the sources of hidden sugar. And maybe you'll 
find a new jar of peanut butter without added sugar or a new jar of tomato sauce without added sugar and get to discover what all these sources of hidden sugars are that you didn't even know about is we don't want to have our kids feel like they're being punished because they want to have sugar and then we're going to say no. And so it's really about making just healthier swaps. So for instance, if your kids wanted to make chocolate-covered pretzels, let's say, and you know that chocolate is loaded with sugar and you don't really want them to have that, an alternative would be to do yogurt-covered pretzels. And you Mm -hmm. could stick them in the freezer using just plain yogurt that has no added sugar And then they still get their little frozen treat, but it's a healthier version of it. And you can do that for a variety of different things, really just kind of making these healthy swaps, changing out the unhealthy ingredient and just maybe just either doing away with it or finding some sort of alternative. When it comes to sugar-sweetened beverages, I completely agree with Michael. There's really no place for juice in children's diets, and especially soda, of course. That's something that really has no place. But if you do have a child that has been drinking soda, has been drinking juice, you can come up with things that are alternatives. So if they like drinking, let's say, soda because it's the fizziness of the bubbles, then let's switch them over to seltzer water or, you know, some sort of other carbonated water beverage that's not going to have all that added sugar. Is it possible to sugar-proof our kids during a holiday that is essentially sugar, all of it? Like, can you actually do enough sugar swapping? Like, Michael, can you take it from there? So your book is called Sugar-Proof. How do we sugar-proof our kids over Halloween? Yeah, and it's uh, extra difficult this year. But although maybe it'll be an advantage that there's not going to be enough trick-or-treating, I'm not, much, I don't think anybody's really sure how it's going to play out. Uh-huh. But, well, we just loaded up on our website, for example, our chocolate sesame squares, which we have, have in our book, and we Halloween them. It's a recipe. It's a chocolate square. It's plant-based. There's no added sugars. It's just based on the natural sweetness of dates that go into it. And if you go into our website, you can see that we use them to mold them into fun Halloween shapes. And that's a fun project that kids can get involved with. We also have our Guackenstein avocado dip, guacamole dip. So you want to make sure that Halloween is not just all about the sugar or, you know, the day off before trick-or-treating, whether that's done at home more than likely this year. Make sure that there's healthy snacks around as well and get them filled up on a decent healthy snack. And you can make that into a Halloween project too with our with our Glackenstein. I can show you a picture of that. And then there's the switch witch, which we talk about. So the switch witch is kind of like the tooth fairy for Halloween. Uh-huh. So kids can still collect candy, but then you can talk to them before they go to bed and say, how much of the candy do you want to keep? And let them open the bidding. You might be surprised. They might say, well, I'd like five pieces and then you're done. But they might <laughs> say, I want to keep 30 pieces, in which case you'll have to negotiate a little bit. But let them be involved with that negotiation. And whatever they don't want, you leave it out for the switch witch. And the switch witch comes along at night and exchanges it for a small gift or a token for a fun activity or something that they will cherish. We don't want to take Halloween away. It's a fun celebration. But there's definitely ways to reduce the sugar load. Here's Walkenstein, by the way. This is our... Oh, wow. (laughs) That's our guacamole dressed up as uh, Frankenstein. So that's a that's on our website. It's a fun kid project. Just and it looks a, healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, that's fine. So yeah, I think just trying to not make it all about the candy. 
there's other things that people can pass out at Halloween, you know, little snack bags of popcorn, air popped corn, stuff like that, that are a lot healthier and have, don't have any added sugar. Pretzels are another option too. Yes. And I think parents actually appreciate that more because then they can use them in the kids' lunch boxes like for weeks on end. So I think that there's ways you can get creative in terms of what you hand out. It doesn't even have to be a food. People can hand out little toys, pencils, erasers, Really, kids just want to go around and collect stuff from people's houses and run around with their friends. That's the essence of Halloween from what I've understood now for having done this for the last 12 years of my kids. Wow. Ah, That's our chocolate sesame squares molded into kind of fun Halloween. This has no added sugars. Uh Yeah, I think I really think that the kids are really more interested in just the collecting of the items and the whole idea of being dressed up and having a great time. And I think I know for where we live in this in New Jersey and in New York, Many dentists will actually offer to collect the candy. And so you can turn it into the dentist and the dentist will then give the kids like a voucher for a local arcade or something in the area that's a little healthier. You know, we don't want to be the sugar police, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and say, why not have the sugar police? Because if we already know from in vitro that extra sugar can cause, first of all, a child to be predisposed to sugar, how can we then expect them as a seven-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old to make the right choice of saying, I'd better not have that much sugar. So what do you say to that? Well, I think the it's a fine line. I mean, I, I think the chances of that backfiring are pretty high mm-hmm. and kids will rebel against it. If not at that time, then later in life, they may rebel against it. And I don't think there's enough evidence to say that all sugar is bad. I mean, I think there's a dose response there. I think there's new dietary guideline recommendations and added sugar should be coming out pretty soon, which are similar to what we've said in the book, which is similar to what the World Health Organization has been saying for years, that added sugar should be about 5% of daily calories and should be zero. So for zero to two-year-olds, the new dietary guidelines hopefully will take the guidance of the advisory committee, which recommended zero added sugars Mm -hmm. between zero and two years of age. That's added sugars. So, and then after that, 5% of calories isn't much, but that doesn't mean to say you can't have any sugar. I think there's still a safe level of consumption and then enjoying a sweet. How does a parent determine that, that dose dependent level? Like that seems to me to be a difficult thing for a family person to sort out. Yeah, totally. And I know this stuff inside out and I'm a parent, but I'm not calculating my head every time I sit down for a meal, what 5% of calories looks Uh like. So We have to kind of use guidelines, examples, cut out the big culprits that we talked about, juice and soda, and try to set some healthier limits on some of the other stuff. Can you give a concrete example of in a day for a 12-year-old, what that might look like, 5%? Yeah, so 5% in a 12-year-old would be, well, let's say that's 1,500 calories. So that's 75 calories from added sugar. So that's what, that's about 20 grams of added sugar, which could easily be taken care of by, let's say, a glass of apple juice or a small glass of soda. That's why getting those out is so important because you want to leave room to enjoy the added sugars within that limit. And again, there's so many hidden sugars like Nicole talked about. Yeah. If we can identify what those are so we can enjoy and then there's natural sugars don't count so that in our all of our recipes and all of our strategies we don't use any added sugar so we can still make a chocolate pear cake or chocolate sesame squares just with the natural sugars from whole fruit or dried Mm -hmm. fruit 
So I'm not saying that we should eat a whole ton of dried fruit or whole, but we can use it in cooking and use the natural sweetness. And then you get all of the natural tastes and all of the healthy nutrients in the whole fruit as well. Yeah. Okay. Nicole, did you want to add something to that? That fine line between it's okay and it's not okay? Yeah, I really think I do agree with Michael that I think imposing really strict guidelines on your children, I don't think that's the best way to go. I think that that is really not the goal. I think the goal is to be able to teach your children to make these choices so that when they become adults and they can do whatever they want, when they're not living in your house or you're not buying their groceries, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be instilled with that knowledge and education about what is a healthy choice. And so I think it's really more about trying to teach the children to police themselves. And so I talk a lot about really just having conversations with your children about, okay, if they ask for dessert at night, say, well, what did you eat today that was sweet? Or did you have any sweet treats today? And if they say, oh yeah, it was Susie's birthday at school and her mom brought in cupcakes then it's like, okay, well, then you're not going to have dessert tonight because you had dessert earlier in the day. And so just really kind of getting them to think about not only the number of times a day that they're offered these types of sweet treats, what's a reasonable amount that they should be consuming, and also what's a reasonable portion size. A lot of times, I you know always go back to the birthday because the cupcake birthday thing has always been you know an issue. Some of these cupcakes are really big. I mean, they're <laughs> like three people could eat one of these cupcakes. And so talking about, well, maybe you don't need to eat that entire cupcake. Maybe you cut it in half and you bring half of it home and then you enjoy it the next day or a couple of days later or whatever it might be. But I think it's really more important to educate the kids about the health benefits of taking care of their bodies by eating good food, reducing sugar intake, but having them be able to recognize when there's too much. And I think that's really the ultimate goal um, so that we can then hope that as they get older and are on their own, they'll be able to really enact what we've taught them. So let me jump on that. And this will be my last major question. And that is that in able to make a healthy choice, what if you've got a budding food addict child? And we've seen them all. They're the kid at the corner store who's screaming because mom won't let them have whatever it is. What do you do in that circumstance? Do you believe that food addiction can exist in children? And if you do, what do you do? Yeah. So I definitely, well, I would never give a screaming child food. (laughs) That's the last thing they're getting if they want food, if they're screaming, because that's just reinforcing a bad behavior by giving them what they want. But it's getting to your point about the addiction. I think that there is the realization that many children could be developing food addicts. I mean, that's something I think we need to acknowledge as a community. And I think that if that's something that parents are concerned about, they certainly should be talking to a pediatrician about it. They might need to get a nutritional counselor involved to get some professional help. But I do think that I don't advise to completely restrict kids from and say, no, you cannot have any added sugar unless there's a medically determined reason for that. Like I said, I think it's just more important for the everyday kid to really just be able to understand how much is too much and when to say when. But like you say, you know, we might have certain situations in which special children might need to have different types of interventions. And that that everyday kid is probably more prevalent than the budding sugar addict in your estimation. I mean, we don't have numbers, obviously, but... Um, We don't. I mean, but if we go by the data that we have for sugar addiction among adults from the studies that have been conducted, and again, this is looking at the general population, not looking at specific groups 
that we know are more at risk for having a food addiction, the average percentage is around 11%. Okay. And so I would imagine that if we extrapolate that to be children, it'd be about that amount or maybe less. So, but we don't have those data yet that I'm aware of. Thank you. Michael, did you want to add something to that? The budding sugar addict and what to do? Only that there's obviously a spectrum, and I don't know at what point you call it an addict, and that all kids are different, and maybe different on different days. And Hmm. I'm sure as parents, we've all seen our different kids responding differently in different situations, and you're not going crazy if you're seeing that. It's just that there's a lot of variability in the system, especially in kids who are growing depending on how they're growing, what they've eaten recently, and all the different contextual variables that might exist. And I would encourage families who are dealing with this at any point in the spectrum to just see what their kids might be like off of sugar. And that's why we have the seven-day challenge to discover what your kids might be like off of sugar. And you might see that they have a much more stable level of energy, as I mentioned earlier. But just also, kids will respond differently and in different situations as well. Do you believe that there is a syndrome of food addiction that might exist in a child? I think it is variable, but I think the symptoms exist. Nicole can answer this better than I do. But in terms of the, in fact, Nicole helped me with the chapter in the book on this. (laughs) But the clinical criteria for addiction are mostly met when it comes to uh, sugar. So whether that's craving more withdrawal symptoms, having negative effects when you come off of it, like headaches and so on. So in many cases, it does meet all the clinical criteria. And I don't know at what point you call that an addiction or not, but the criteria themselves are enough to deal with whether or not you want to call it an addiction or not. Yeah. I think dealing with those criteria are important. So first, what came out earlier to either Nicole or Michael, when it comes to sugar uh, substitutes or the low-calorie sweeteners, yeah. is there anything to... Uh, well, first of all, generally your thoughts and the direct question was, is it more concerning for children than it is adults? So maybe if either one of you talk a little bit about low-calorie sweeteners or artificial, however you want to sum it up. I'll start just to say that there's a lot of different options out there for low-calorie sweeteners. And when... The nutrition guidelines were changed recently that mandated that food companies needed to disclose on their label how much grams of added sugar are in their food products. Many of these companies didn't want to have to put that their product contained 300% of the daily recommended value of sugar. And so they opted to include some of these non-caloric or low-calorie sweeteners, which don't technically count as a sugar. My take on the matter is, again, as a neuroscientist, what we know from the research is that it's the sweet taste that affects the brain reward system. And so if you're using monk fruit or you're using stevia or you're using Splenda, it's going to have the same effect in terms of activating the dopamine release, activating the brain reward system. And in terms of breaking an addiction, I don't see that as being very helpful. For some people, it can be helpful though, because they can sort of use those alternative sweeteners as a crutch to kind of wean themselves off of sugar and off of sweet. But I think that the goal should really be to try to unsweeten our diet as much as we can. And that's really going to be the way to break the cycle of cravings and withdrawal and these urges to want to consume sugary foods. I would just add to that by saying in in Sugar Proof, we don't recommend any alternative sweeteners, even if they are naturally occurring, like Nicole mentioned, for the reasons 
she mentioned, but also because we just don't know enough about the long-term effects. Many of them are, first of all, they have different pathways of action. So there's not one class of compounds. So some of them are not even absorbed by the body. So they can have negative effects on the gut microbiome with downstream effect. And also studies in children show actually that kids who regularly consume products with low-calorie sweeteners end up consuming more calories throughout the day. And that's partly what to do with what Nicole mentioned, because basically they've tricked the system, not just on the reward process, but tricked the body also in believing that calories are coming in, but those calories never arrive. And the body thinks there's calories there, so it takes energy out of the body, glucose, and then you go hypoglycemic and crave more food. Okay, great. No, they're uh, very helpful. Yeah, and I can't help but feel there's also this concern with the low-calorie sweeteners is it almost gives us a license to eat if, as if it doesn't count. Perhaps both of you can just talk about, so we've talked a fair amount about sugar, but do you want to talk a little bit about let's simple and complex carbohydrates? So specifically from the floor, your concerns about fast food, some of the breads, the crackers, your thoughts on simple carbohydrates, and then are you concerned or should parents be concerned or generally when it comes to the complex carbs, the naturally occurring sugars in the fruits and the dairies? So if you can kind of just talk about that, if you could. Yeah, so I'll jump in and say, you no, know, when I saw the question, I thought the question was about hidden sugars in breads and crackers, which is one issue. So oh. we'll definitely watch out for hidden sugars in there, but also in the context of starches. Oh. Those, yeah, those are also simple starches that are rapidly broken down to glucose and therefore can cause many of these other effects that we're talking about inside the body because it's glucose spikes and that means an insulin spike and down the path of diabetes and so on. So we want to try to move away from those simple starches towards more less refined products. That's not to say that less refined products are okay, but certainly better because they're still broken down rapidly but less rapidly into glucose. In terms of natural sugars in dairy and fruit, those don't count in any way towards the added sugars that we talked about. But again, you have to watch out for the hidden sugars. So you think, let's take yogurt, for example. So the, the natural dairy in yogurt, the milk, that's not added sugars, but in many, many cases, there's sugars added to that. So look out for added sugars in those products. And in terms of fruit, Technically, fruit juice is not an added sugar. In my books, it is because it's what I call free sugars. It's taking the sugars out of the natural form and concentrating them. So in a glass of apple juice, you're going to get all the sugars from, let's say, three apples and consume it in five minutes, whereas nobody's really eating three apples all at once, mm -hmm. certainly not in five minutes. Okay, thank you, Tony, and thank you all for hosting and for attending and giving us such uh, really, really interesting information. Thank you very much. Terry and I are grandparents. We have four children that are married. Two of them have five grandchildren between them. And so for us, the challenge is over the last few years, thanks to Tony's assistance, we've learned a lot about the value of real food and added sugar. And while we've changed our lifestyle and while we've tried to change the lifestyle of our children and grandchildren that come into our house, it would be great if you had some ideas to help us try to help our kids with the grandchildren so that the grandchildren who we see having too much added sugar and we see that they're eating for us 
too much sugar. It would be great to have some ideas for how we can help. I think one of the things that parents struggle with, and I'm speaking a bit from experience here, is that it's sugar can be a tool in many cases when you have a lot going on and there's no time to cook all the different things that all the different children are going to want to eat. I mean, I think a lot of times parents end up, you know, offering a child like a yogurt or something that might have sugar in it because they know the kid is going to eat it and they know that that's something that they'll want to eat. So I think one of the things that would be really helpful just as grandparents would be to help your children to understand what some alternatives might be. And so if you see that they're giving their children these kid-looking yogurts that have lots of added sugar in them. Maybe you can help them identify, you know, oh, here's a brand that makes a yogurt that is delicious and it doesn't have any added sugar. It has a lot less added sugar. And help them to make those swaps because I think that that's something that a lot of parents come to me with questions about is my kid is very picky eater, only likes to eat certain types of foods and they all happen to have a lot of sugar. So what could I swap in? And I think really just maybe offering ideas and suggestions on different foods to try would I think be something that you could do that would be really helpful. Great. Michael? Yeah. Often I've gotten this question a lot, Terry and Lauren, but usually it's the other way around. Usually it's parents saying, oh, I've got these grandparents and you keep, you know, <laughs> oiling my kids and I send them to the grandparents and they come back fully yeah. loaded up with sugar. That's the, you know, we get that question a lot. So, and we talk about that. We haven't talked about the reverse issue in the book, but you could give the gift of sugar proof. And um, I think yeah. we've, I, we've been on Amazon with your books and Nicole's books, and we're going to be clicking send as soon as this is over. <laughs> because I, I think helping them understand what the ramifications are, because I didn't talk about this earlier, but the bad news is it's unfortunate that many of these effects that we're talking about are kind of asymptomatic. So let's say with this kind of long-term development of chronic diseases, whether that's diabetes or fatty liver disease or cardiovascular disease, those things are all seated in early life, but they, and they continue along. But it's like the frog in the slow boiling water. It's just slowly developing without any symptoms. And then, because we don't just suddenly wake up at 45 with diabetes and risk of heart disease, that process is slowly evolving, but it's asymptomatic. So parents may not be aware of many of these underlying problems. And we talk about those in the book. Yeah. And I'll just add to that, Michael. Another point that I think is important to raise is about the asymptomatic part is a lot of times people will look at their child and the child looks like their normal weight. They're not overweight. There's no concerns with the pediatrician about their body weight. But that doesn't mean that on the inside that they're not already starting to have increased cholesterol levels, have many of these beginnings of metabolic disease. And so just because a kid looks healthy on the outside doesn't mean that they are healthy on the inside. And if they have a poor diet and they're eating a lot of added sugars, odds are that they're headed down that road of um, having trouble later in life. Yeah, they're starting to get middle-aged diseases already in uh, childhood, just astounding. Cynthia from the hand icon, do you want to take the floor with your question? Thank you. I'm Cynthia Myers Morrison, and I have been a teacher and have one experience to share there and a suggestion and a question. The experience was a student who had a lot of roaded area around his lips. And when I asked his mother what his favorite food was, it was oranges in the whole skin. He would eat the entire orange and press it against his lips and so on. He was a student that was very bright and 
he had a lot of behavior issues, one of which was not turning in his homework. As soon as I called to his mother's attention that the responses that he was generating physically around his lips and perhaps behaviorally might be related to the oranges and would he, he was part of this discussion, would he and his mother abstain from their eating oranges in their home for just a week or two and see what happened along with your line of... uh, Mr. Gorham, Dr. Gorham. And so what happened was he started turning in his homework regularly. His, the allergy rash went away and his behavior problems evaporated. And the thing with the reverse view is that as a teacher, seeing children after Halloween in the regular schools when they were attending and eating their sugar, there would be no one that would say that sugar was not affecting all of our children, all of them. Anyone who put some in their mouth were affected by in that week or so after the holiday because they were very much impaired. Last but not least, the question in terms of saying that the grains are okay, maybe they are for some people. In my household, we had a swimmer who was 368 pounds when she died and her initial swimming had been able to keep her weight under control, but she was her favorite food was potatoes, noodles on top of the potatoes on a little piece of beef. Mm -hmm. And her next favorite was sugar. She had that from when she was a very young child. And is that that food addiction that you're talking about? And would there only be 11% of the children or with our obesity rates, is it possible that it's far higher amongst children than 11%? Go ahead, Nicole. I think that was addressed to you. Yeah. So great points. I do think that we need some more research being done with children to understand food addiction. There is a scale that's been developed geared toward children to assess food addiction. It's called the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Is it for kids too? Has there it been is. There's a like children's version that came wow. out a few years ago. Yes. It hasn't been studied quite as to the extent that the adult version has. And so I think that we just need to do some more research to really get a better handle on the prevalence of food addiction in these younger populations. But Michael had said earlier, I think we certainly know the symptoms are there. So regardless of what we want to call it an addiction or not, I think it's important that we start treating the symptoms of it. And so recognizing what those symptoms are and understanding them is, I think, the first step towards helping these children. Because you're right, it may be more than 11%. And as we see the obesity rates going up, we know that children, or excuse me, adults who are obese or overweight have a higher prevalence of being diagnosed with having a food addiction. Thank you both very much. Well, just an enormous amount of information. I grew up in England just after the Second World War, where sugar was rationed. And so a trip to the sweet shop was a very special occasion, and it was always in small amounts. But in the following decade or so, the business, the candy business, became somewhat of a sort of a scientific, slightly, it was sort of a a less than honest, where portions became enormous, where the sugar content went up. And I, as a consequence, I became a a real sugar binger. And for reasons that I won't go into, in my early 20s, my whole dietary thing changed. And I realized when I came back down to earth from consuming so much of that type of food, 
that I began to realize just what was I eating and how do I eat. You people have provided such fabulous information, but most people don't have that information. Mm -hmm. And it's the onus, unfortunately, is, is on the parent to find out the information, whereas, let's put it politely, the cynicism of the food industry is to sell more product by using a vehicle to do that. And I find it just, where's the balance here? You know, is there nothing in between the avarice of producers wanting to sell product for profit and the health of the population? How, how can your marvelous efforts in producing evidence-based information to people, but the onus is still on the parents? And young parents, do they really have time to go into analyzing everything? Dr. Vera came round on a private visit one time and just showed me a can of beans and the ingredients on the back. And of course, sugar was mentioned, but then she said, and that sugar, and that sugar, and that sugar. I didn't know that. So what can be that component to help parents bring up their children in that way? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And I don't know what the happy ground is. Food companies have hijacked our kids' taste buds by feeding off of their known preference for sweetness. They've got over 200 different names for sugar so that they can disguise it and trick the consumer. So we do need more parent education, but we also need more policy-based decisions. And I think a lot of you are in Canada, but in the U.S., this is extremely difficult. Things like Mm. sugar taxes, food marketing rules. And other countries have done it. So Chile has done it. Chile has a whole policy on food marketing and how to advertise and when you can advertise kids' foods, for example, as well as sugar taxes. No, I completely agree with you. I think that it's really a challenge for parents and to have to sift through all the science and the information that's out there. That's really one of the reasons why I know I, and I believe Michael as well, decided to start writing books on these topics because we're scientists. So we have the time and and the interest in diving through all these studies and we find it fun and interesting. We can analyze them, but the average parent who maybe isn't in medicine or in science doesn't have that ability. And so I feel like that's been one of the things I hope I'm able to give back to the community is to take the information, the scientific complexities, and really just boil them down into understandable bite-sized information pieces that parents can use and then hopefully apply to make better decisions for their family. And both of you have done that wonderfully in your books, both of you. Like that's the, I would say that's the value of that. It's science in bite-sized pieces that are yeah, I mean, that, that was totally the goal of Sugar Proof was to take the latest science, explain it, and translate it to what we call news that you can use for parents. And now we're trying to get parents to know about it. Well, Michael Goran's book, Sugar Proof, The Hidden Dangers of Sugar That Are Putting Your Child's Health at Risk and What You Can Do, is an excellent write-up about the dangers of sugar, of which some of only we've touched on. Like, really, we could have spent a whole day just talking about that. And then the various ways to approach how you can live in a sugar-laden world with as healthy as possible. And then Nicola Vina has written a couple of excellent books. If you just want to read about the science of food addiction, she has a book called Hedonic Eating, How the Pleasure of Food Affects Our Brain and Behavior and Why Diets Fail, which really talks about the science. But then again, specifically for families, what to eat when you want to get pregnant, if you're a mom, and if you're a mom with kids, how to feed your kids. 
what to feed your babies and toddler. We will have in our uh, notes the ways that you can get that information. And I think that Nicole is actually putting some, some stuff in there. So I want to say thank you very much to both of you for your time to speak about these issues. And Tony, I'm going to give it back to you. Okay, no, actually, you just touched upon what I was just going to mention. So everyone, will, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Tons of information, topic that actually needs to be talked about uh, much more often. Thank you. Any last words from either of you or last words, message of hope? I just want to thank everyone for their time and for listening and their interest in this important topic. And hopefully they can go tell three people about one thing that they learned tonight about how we can make some changes to help our kids and to lead healthier lives in general. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar-Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.